welcome to the Theology Pugcast, again virtually uh, with you uh, via Zoom and on YouTube and on our Facebook page at uh, Theology Pugcast at Facebook. And anyway, we're glad to have you with us again today. We've got uh, what what I think is going to be a fun conversation, and it's just us. It's just us. We've had we've had special guests past couple of times, and those were great conversations. But uh, uh, this will be my day, and I've got a, a, a something I think uh, people will enjoy uh, listening to us talk about. But why don't we introduce ourselves, Tom? Why don't you go ahead and get us going? Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And if we do have a guest that will probably come in on my screen, it will be my cat. (laughs) (laughs) We we had, uh, and and by the way, you're in in another location today. Uh, Where are you, Glenn? Uh, This is the old forest. So the, this should be clear in a few minutes. That's right. So we're in the old forest. This is a first book in the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. And we are we are in the old forest. And it does look pretty spooky. And so uh, apropos, apropos. Interesting point bef- before I forget. Um, I was reading uh, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the ancient philosophers this week in the Eleatic School. And, of course, they were some of the ones that first were not happy with the materialism of the ancient philosophers. And they, they were very impactful on Plato's views of transcendence. But one of the things that were interesting is the way they understood the gods to communicate with, with the rest of cre- you know, human creatures was through the trees. And oh. the, the messages came through the different ways that the trees' leaves would blow and, and different aspects of the tree. So that was kind of illuminative for me. I, I had never heard that, uh, that particular aspect of the Eleatic school. So uh, uh, interesting thread, I think, uh, well, that, that follow is a, with that. Cool. Yeah. It'd be it. interesting to find out if that's connected with uh, the word for wind or spirit. Yeah, word in Greek, and maybe if the spirit is going to speak, you see it through the moving of the branches of the trees. Right, right. Ah. Yeah, pneuma, right. Yeah, yeah. Where we get pneumatic drill, and uh, you know what? You know, you and I are going pneumonia, all kinds <laughs> of things. <laughs> We've had that on the mind a bit here in recent yeah. uh, recent days, but uh, that's fa- that's fascinating because in the second book of my young adult trilogy, I get into you know trees, and in the first book, it was it was present there as well, but. But this will be a theme that we can pick up someday. Yes. And I know Lynn will be happy <laughs> when it actually it's a little closer to my, my book getting published. But anyway, and, uh, I, and I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I've written a few things. And the, one of the things that I'm, I'm working on, uh, a book that I'm working on, we've talked about before, and it's uh, a book on Tom Bombadil. And we, we did an episode some time back on Tom Bombadil. And it's been one of the, uh, the, the, you know, the most popular episodes that we've had. It was, it was a lot of fun dealing with that enigmatic, mysterious Tom Bombadil that some people just wonder, what in the world is he in the story for? There are memes that you can see that sort of compare him to you know, Jar Jar Banks and <laughs> different, different kind of absurdities in, in the history of, of, uh, of fiction. But, um, but, you know, our point was, or in my point, and you guys played with it a little bit, is that really, if you want to understand sort of the moral message of the Lord of the Rings, 
you don't find a better clue than Bombadil. And if you, and, and so that's a teaser. If you've not mm-hmm. listened to the Bombadil episode, <laughs> you'll need to go now. Now this episode, you'll, you'll get some of that, but, but we're going to be focusing on Bombadil's wife, Goldberry, who is even more mysterious. She's an enigma wrapped in a mystery. She's just that much more difficult to, to talk about because there's less to work with, or at least I thought so until I began work on a chapter on her. And so I wanted to, you know, share some of the things I've learned. And, and really, I think it, it provides a, an interesting sort of launch pad for us to get into paganism and pagan thought and, you know, folk tales and fairy tales and how they relate to the Christian faith. There's, there's a lot we can think about and talk about. But before we jump into all that, I just want to let folks know that our Indiegogo campaign is underway. And we've got about five hundred dollars that have, that has been pledged already to the campaign. Uh, we've kind of done a, a a sort of soft start. You know, so, you know, it's not like we've been pushing this hard or anything. But uh, a few people have already jumped on board, and we're glad for that. And we also have, and I noted this last time, we we also have a YouTube channel, Theology Podcast on YouTube. And if you go there, you'll see the little intro to the. Indiegogo campaign. It's not very long, about five minutes. And there are, are some, there's a link that'll take you right to the campaign. So that's the, probably the easiest way to find the campaign. And you can learn about all of our merch, <laughs> our glasses, our, our shirts, and <coughs> that stuff. <laughs> anyway, well, how about if we jump into things? You guys ready? Yep. Ready to go. Okay. So anyway, you know, the, the, you know, as I noted in the sort of the, the buildup to the, to the topic for the day, it's my day and I want to talk about Goldberry. Now, I had a conversation with my daughter-in-law about Goldberry a little while back. And my daughter-in-law, one of my daughter, daughters-in-law, uh, is a big uh, Tolkien fan. She teaches Tolkien in her classical school. And so, uh, and she loves Bombadil, but she was just sort of like, what's Goldberry about? Is she like a trophy wife or something? <laughs> and I and I kind of laughed at the moment, but I didn't really have a whole lot to say in terms of, you know, how to, you know, you know what she is and 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 what what her role is in the story. I, I didn't know what to say at the time, and uh, up until very recently, I still didn't have much to say. Uh, but then when I began to work on the the chapter on Goldberry in my book, um, I was really kind of surprised at just how many clues there are actually in the text to help us understand, you know, Goldberry. And there's also um, a lot of material that, uh, that we find outside of the Lord of the Rings that I think uh, is worth reflecting on. One of those, one of those sources is actually Tolkien, and, and he, he actually wrote about the relationship of, of Bombadil and Goldberry uh, in the, his poem, you know, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Which uh, kind of gives you their pre-story, you know, their their you know their pre-engagement relationship, <laughs> which is kind of fun. But anyway, so now one of the things we have to work with, of course, is that Goldberry is the River Woman's daughter, which is something that I just never really thought much about. But as I got into it, I realized, or I came to see, that this is a tremendously significant clue as to where. Tolkien got the idea for Goldberry. 
but more generally speaking, I think that water, particularly small bodies of water, uh, streams, ponds, even lakes, uh, when we when our ancestors have thought about them, reflected on them, they've and, and sort of in you know looked at them through the lens of sort of an animist. Uh, you know, sort of, un, you know, understandings of reality perceived that they were feminine. And uh, within, you know, other cultures in the world, there is a tendency to associate water, particularly smaller bodies of water with, with, with women. But if you even think about yin, yin and yang, you know, and the idea of, you know, you know, you have the, you know, the receptive and the active, you know, yin being receptive Yang being uh, active, and water uh, and coolness are associated with yin, the receptive, and then heat and activity with the or dry with yang. So, very naturally, there's this kind of connection uh, with the feminine. And I suppose you know people today when they hear that sort of thing would say, "Well, oh, that's all just socially constructed." As if, you know, societies don't actually have something to do with the natural world and reflect mm-hmm. upon it. <laughs> and it might actually have some insight into the nature of things or the natures of things. By the way, I've been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Studies on Words, and, his, and his, in his opening chapter on nature was fascinating. And he had confirmed a suspicion I'd had, uh, not so much a suspicion, but... A, a, a poorly remembered sort of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, idea that, you know, within the history of the West, we've moved from natures to nature. But getting back to the earlier understanding, when we think of natures, uh, perceiving that uh, small bodies of water and even larger bodies like lakes have a feminine nature uh, or feminine quality. Anyways, so... There's that association, and that certainly comes through. But before I kind of get into sort of like my ahas, I wanted to see if you guys had any thoughts about anything I've just stated. One of the things that I think Lewis does really well, and I noted this particularly in his appendices to the abolition of man, is he points out that there's a lot more commonality across cultures than we normally acknowledge. And so the question becomes, why? You know, in the case of the abolition of man, he was talking about a moral law. In the case of this idea of small bodies of water and and the feminine, why is that? Um, You know, if it is common across cultures, uh, you could say it's a coincidence, but then you would expect an even distribution. You know, male and female, masculine. Right, right, right. The fact that it tends to go in one direction suggests that people saw something there probably reflective of thinking about the world in a really different way than we do. As people who are very close to nature as opposed to us who are very far removed from it, that there was something that they were perceiving there that we just don't get. Right, right. Yeah. Any thoughts, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking. I, mean, I was thinking sort of the history of, of 
thought and I was thinking really what you have, you know, that, that I think Lewis Tolkien and a lot of these other figures it from kind of that, that kind of literary and imaginative world were doing is they were, they were um, really trying to get a hold of that, that's that more organic relation between creation, culture, and, and of course, spirituality. Um, which I think they were very aware that some some problem came in, you know, whether it's tied to nominalism later with the Enlightenment, whatever, to where social engineering and the way in which we start to to take language to reflect and and, and basically um, embody our ideals, um, rather than a much closer, even earlier idealism like Plato had a much closer knit organic connection between nature language, culture, and ideas. And I think that's really what I see going on here in, in the way in which these stories are able to bring all of these things back together. They, they, um, they're the heartbeat, even of when you get to scripture, you, it's the heartbeat of scripture. It, it has that same organic connectedness with, with everything we know as, as the real and, and life. Right. Yeah, there there are like, you know, certain onomatopoeia things that you can see in Hebrew, you know, it's and yeah. they're even kind of funny sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but I also think there is this uh this tendency to think analogically mm-hmm. uh as opposed to allegorically. You know, with when yeah. we when we tend to think about uh images or stories or uh even objects mm-hmm. or people we tend to think about uh, allegories because with an allegory, there's a kind of strict and tight relationship. This is that, right? Uh, and it doesn't have any sort of independent existence except as some kind of just vague, you know, sort of referent to the thing that it's being it's, that it's pointing to. Whereas with uh, analogs and, and analogies, generally. Uh, a thing can be itself and still yeah. uh, relate to something else. So, you know, the, the idea that uh, uh, the female or the feminine uh, and the river, you know, uh, are, you know, analogs in some sense uh, wouldn't be absurd. <laughs> yeah. In other words, it's not like saying I'm merely, an, you know, a representation of a river or a river is merely a representation of a woman. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. That's that's allegorical uh, thinking. It's not analogical thinking, right? yeah. or, and you know, thinking with it through through analogies. So, with with that in mind, you know, it seems to me like you brought out Glenn. Uh, you know, there was a kind of in, intuition. They intuited uh, uh, these connections, and it just felt they you know it, you know may, they might not been been able to sort of lay it out in a strict and rigorous way but it was just sort of an association that was was known you know yeah, and another thing that's very important to tolkien's thinking uh is the idea that at its best in for example elven words actually connect directly to what they point to you know, in standard linguistics, we tell you that uh, words are completely arbitrary. You know, there's no reason why something should be called a mesa or a table. I mean, you know, it, 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 
You can use different words for the same thing. There are no commonalities in sound and all that. So it's all just arbitrary. I don't think Tolkien ever actually believed that. And in his discussion of language uh, in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and elsewhere, there's this very strong sense that words are more than just signposts. They actually have meaning way beyond just simply being an arbitrary collection of sounds that points to something else. Right. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, that's a very sacramental way of thinking as well. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of, the, a lot of people trip up on the sacraments today is because we can't see how, how the, the, the sort of the signs participate in the things that they relate to while at the same time being themselves. Yeah. So, you know, bread can still be bread, wine can still be wine, but it's also, you know, the body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. You were going to say something, Todd? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't want to gear things up. <laughs> I'll say it real fast and then we can just shift out of it. But I, I mean, I've been reading some fascinating stuff about the way in which uh, one of the contributions that Aquinas brought to to kind of help Western theological and philosophical reflection have a much stronger um, Christian distinction. And one of the things he brought into it really is the exact point you just said um, is that you know the tendency was oftentimes in in certain kind of certain kinds of platonic uh, readings was that that really the only significance a, 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 a thing has is is its referential and aquinas of course uh, wanted to say no the thing has its own dignity for what it is yet it has this surplus about it that is also referential um, but one of the interesting things he talks about is the way in which Parmenides and different thinkers, they were on the right track with understanding the infinite source of all things as being that which supplies existence to everything. But what Parmenides ends up doing, because it's hard to think of pure I amness, right? He, ha- he turns I am into a subject, basically, and one more thing within the chain of things. And, and, and I think that's where the complication is, is that when you have that he who is, which is the infinite source of all things, as, as not one more within a chain of things, but is the very source that supplies all of those things with their being and their natures, well, then you don't have to reduce things and their natures to the source of all things, because the source isn't one more nature among natures. The source is that which gives all natures their very natures. And so those natures have their own dignity. Anyway, that's a lot of metaphysics. I don't want to go down there. But that was kind of the same point, but from a very metaphysical yeah. angle. And, that, and that, that's the problem with pure Platonism, too. Yes. You know, where they, they just make the, the, uh, the source and origin of all things the first of a chain. Yes, yeah. As opposed to having it be transcendent and the chain being the created things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive back into Goldberry's story. And uh, this is actually a good way to do that because we're talking about things that associate, um, things that participate in other things. And when we first meet Goldberry in, in The Fellowship of the Ring, to, to just remind, uh, you know, listeners... Uh, how the story goes. The hobbits are 
going through the old forest, what, what uh, Glenn has behind him there. And <laughs> it's a dark and scary place. And there's this malicious tree, Old Man Willow. And Old Man Willow manages to capture P- Pippin and Mary uh, in the cracks of his tree. And he's, he's going to really, he doesn't have very nice plans for them. <laughs> he's going he's to do things to them. Anyway, so Frodo and Sam are desperate. They, Frodo <laughs> starts uh, to just, you know, yell and run uh, aimlessly, you know, help, help, help. And what do you know? Tom Bombadil appears. And initially, it's just this absurd figure. You look at him and you say, what can he possibly do to help? But what we what we discover through his actions is that yeah Tom could do a lot to help, <laughs> and he delivers uh, Mary and Pippin, and then invites the hobbits to his house to to come and have you know uh, dinner with him and his wife Goldberry and to and to stay a while. So he traipses off, and they trudge along after. And uh, as the sun is going down and it's getting dark, and they're having a hard time finding their way, and uh, and they're starting to even lose hope that they'll have actually find, you know, Tom's house. This is what occurs. Uh, they all hurried forward, hobbits and ponies. Already half their weariness and all of their fears had fallen from him, from them. Hey, come Mary Dole, rolled out the song to greet them. Hey, come Derry Dole, hop along my hearties. Hobbits, ponies all, we are fond of parties. Let now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. Then another clear voice, as young and as ancient as spring. What a line. As young and as ancient as spring. Like the song of glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills. Came falling like silver to meet them. Then she sings. Now let the song begin. Let us sing together of sun, stars, moon, and mist, rain, and cloudy weather. Light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather. Wind on the open hill, uh, bells on the heather. Reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water. Old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter. And that's our introduction to Goldberry. That's the first that we hear from her. When the hobbits come into the house, of course, they discover that she's a beautiful woman and uh, dressed regally, but also simply, and that she's seated uh, on what is like a throne. Hmm. And um, when they uh, come in, it says, uh, uh, the hobbits looked at her in wonder. And she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices. But the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the light, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. And that's an introduction to Goldberry. And she's surrounded uh, by the lilies, if you recall, that Tom had collected for her. And they're in little earthen bowls around her feet. 
almost as though she's back in the pond or back in mm-hmm. some shallows in you know in the Winthy window surrounded by water lilies and that's their first impression of her now, that's powerful stuff right <laughs> yeah and the associations with water just are so rich uh, but so but also so so delightful so gentle so so uh, enriching so nurturing really I would say would be another way to put it describing you know the course of the water from the bright morning in the hills to you know the flowing into the river at dusk, which is what you know you see at this point in the story. They're they're at the headwaters of the Withy Window, which is the river that she's the daughter of, the river daughter. Um, she's actually uh, the the daughter of the woman who is the you know the river. She's the river daughter of the of the river woman, and that's important. And that's something that'll come up in a, in a few minutes. Uh, as I sort of explore the the material that I think I'm pretty confident Tolkien was drawing on, <laughs> but but the connections there uh, are rich. Any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I'm I'm struck by a common North European folklore image of the in between times. You know, when it's it's neither day nor night, it's dusk. Yes. They travel until it's dusk, and they only get to the house at dusk. Right. You know, we're at the headwaters of the river. That's sort of an in-between place. Yeah. It's where the river is and isn't. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and these ideas, these these in-between places and in-between times represent cracks in the world Hmm. in which... Spring would be an example, too. Um, It's a crack in the world where the transcendent breaks through or where you can get to the preternatural. Right, right. In in a lot of Northern Europe, those cracks are very (laughs) short windows of time, (laughs) both in the amount of of sunlight and the amount of spring. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's worth noting that traditionally, the dates for the beginning of the seasons are halfway between the solstices and the equinoxes. Right. And that's, again, that's that in-between time. Yeah, that is interesting. I, 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 I've, you know, never really reflected on that, but, you know, I was aware of that. That's, that's really, that's really keen insight. Now, one of the things, though, about sort of like dusk, you know, is that you've got, you know, a, sort of a, a movement from light to dark or with the dawn, you know, you've got a movement from dark to light with regard to this in-between time. And that actually is a nice segue into this whole matter of the pagan and what we're dealing with. Um, one of the things that, that struck me as I was reflecting on Goldberry is I, I had a sense, I, I thought I recalled that uh, this was a very unusual water spirit because water spirits in European folklore are often malicious and uh, if not malicious, ambiguous, they were, the, they were, you didn't want to be on the wrong side of one of these water spirits. And uh, one of the water spirits that came to mind was Jenny Greenteeth. I don't know if you're familiar with her or heard of her, but Jenny Greenteeth is, you know, was said to, to have uh, dwelled in small ponds and treacherous little streams and, and rivers uh, in the northeast of England. And uh, what she would do is she would wait for some unwary 
foolish child to get too close to the water. And then she would spring out and grab her or him in her fangs, her green teeth, her long green teeth. So this is clearly an ugly creature. <laughs> and then bring them into the water to drown them. Ah. You know, so this is what we're dealing with, water spirits. Another, another sort of a common water spirit that you see throughout uh, Europe, particularly northern Europe, is the washerwoman. So with with the washerwoman, you would you would have these encounters with this fae, who's the washerwoman, this fairy, and if you saw her, it was uh, uh, it portended death, uh, mm. because what she was invariably washing were the bloodied garments of the dead. So she'd be washing the, the the garments of men who had died in battle or something like that. So if you saw her, you might. Ha, you know, get the message, <laughs> or you might infer from that that yeah. either someone you love is going to die, there's going to be a lot of death around, or you're going to die. And that's an, also important in the story. It was re, as we hear, you know, Tolkien sort of working with this uh, a bit. But any thoughts on any of that? Well, it's fascinating that he's consciously, well, of course, he's well aware of of the lore, and he's consciously articulating a distinct way of expressing his character in relationship to that. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, for me, I don't know enough about what goes into that. Um, but yeah, it may, makes you raise the question in many ways of, you know, what, what he's up to and why he's up to it. Um, in, in one sense, he's, he's retelling, he's using, drawing off of all of these characters, this imagery, this history, but on the other, there's a sort of, you know, sanctifying going on at certain points of, of certain kinds of characters. Um, and, and, think, and in a way, he's, he's he, you know, I mean, think of it. I mean, I, he's self, you know, he, he's very honest about his, his own Christianity and it, its, its impact on his work. And so when you think about it, I mean, water, you know, you have everything at the beginning, the spirit hovering over the waters. You have a very different relationship I mean, you have one that would seem to emphasize power, and so. But on the other hand, the the you know there is the, the you know water, even in the biblical imagery. When I mean, you have everything from not only the oceans of being all the way down to the sanctifying, holy work, um, the spirit always tied with baptism and and um, the washing the the water of the womb, right? The hovering of the spirit over the waters of the womb. And, and, and there is an interesting connection there, especially with the feminine and, of course, Mary and the incarnation. And I'm not saying he's trying to draw direct, draw this into that imagery, but, but it, there is a change that goes on from green teeth to, to the peaceableness of this. Uh, Goldberry, yeah, comparing green, Jenny Green Teeth with Goldberry. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a contrast. But, but you're, you're onto something, I think, that's right. I mean, were you aware that Tolkien was the translator of Jonah for the Jerusalem Bible? Nope. No. That's what he, uh, he was. Now think about that. So here's yeah. a guy who clearly, he's got the, the, you know, the, 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 the sources, you know, you know, mastered within, you know, European languages and so forth and folklore. And he, he, speaking of language, you know, he invented the languages and, and realized that he needed to, de to develop them the myths 
<laughs> That's a good, yeah. uh, from which the the languages were drawn. So he saw all these connections. But you, but your point you just made there, Tom, about sanctifi- the sanctifying sort of thing that's going on. I, I, I think that's exactly right. So it's like, like if, we, if we look at the old forest, yeah. everything about the old forest is kind of spooky yeah, and, yeah. And, and dangerous, yeah. including Goldberry. And I'm going to give you some background on why I can say that. But before I do, before I do, yeah. I, I want to I want to give you uh, my uh, what is this? This is my uh, my my key, sort of the thing that unlocked my my thinking in this in this respect. I, I have a great resource. It's entitled Spir- uh, "Spirits, Fairies, Leprechauns, and Goblins: An Encyclopedia" <laughs> by Carol Rose. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here it is, right there. So, folks who are, who are there watching on YouTube and and on our Facebook page can see this. This book. There's a source for those out there who like to have bibliographies, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Spirits, various leprechauns, and goblins. This was, by the way, with the uh, the reference work of 1996. It was it was given an award <laughs> by the Library Journal, but it, I've used it a lot. I've used it in my own fiction. And uh, so what I, what I did what I did is when I started reflecting on Goldberry, I thought water spirits, of course. And I go bit to the glossary here. I know I, I see it, and there it is, water spirits, and just gives me a list. And this this is a, a book that gives us uh, a lot to work with from all over the world, the east, the west, uh, but particularly northern Europe is rich. And uh, I came across this. This is one of the water spirits. Uh, now this is Finnish, so I'm going to brutalize it. But it's a but ian aderza aderza but ian aderza. Now I've mispronounced. If there's somebody out there who speaks Finnish, uh, I'm half Finnish, but I'm not great with the language. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the here's the description. This is the name of a water spirit in the folklore of the Chimeris Mari people of the former Soviet Republic. And they're, by the way, uh, ethnically Finns. So there's a tie to Finland. But but ian uderza, or derza, which means water devil's daughter. Think about that. Is a female freshwater spirit of human shape. The spirit is subordinate to the main spirit venerated for a stretch of water and is therefore called the daughter of the spirit. In this case, Butian. Butian is the, is the spirit. That's the devil in this case. Butian Ederza uh, may sometimes be seen on the riverbank combing her long golden hair hmm. with a golden or silver comb. Mortal men may be able to marry her. <laughs> if they can catch her by touching her with iron, which renders her unable to escape. However, if the true identity of the spirit is ever revealed, she will die like a mortal uh, immediately. Kind of like a Rumpelstiltskin kind of thing. But anyway, now that, when I when I read that, I said, yowza! <laughs> because uh, there's some backstory in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil that uh, make these connections uncannily similar or make make, make a, a set of uh, i should say correspondences on you know so so significant that it's impossible at least for me to dismiss but do you have any thoughts on, on any of that before I, I read that part 
just a strange bit of Finnish humor being, being a bit Finn myself. So the Finns love saunas, right? And so they, the family tendency is to all be naked in the sauna. But one of the things they do by tradition is after they're in the sauna, they run naked in the snow and jump into the river. So maybe they're chasing the, uh, you know, wow. maybe it was a way of winning the uh, river bride, you know. So if you if you catch the girl, then she's got to be your wife or something? Yeah, take her back to the sauna, get married, you know. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts there, Glenn, before I jump into my next uh, bit of data? Yeah, I, I've also been thinking about some other water spirits that uh, Tolkien was very well familiar with, like the Lady of the Lake. Sure. And, and the women that are associated with Arthur, uh, particularly after after his death or wounding. But um, they seem to be from a totally different folkloric direction. So Right, right. Yeah, I think there we see kind of the regalness and... Uh, some, but there's still uh, a, a profound mystery to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that even with all of this stuff that I'm working with, it's not so much like we're able to like pin Goldberry down like a beetle on a card or something. There's, there's something rich here and deep. But one of the things that uh, this brought to mind, particularly this whole matter, if you can catch her, then she's got to marry you, brought the adventures of Tom Bombadil to mind. So, in the adventures of Tom Bombadil, you know, one of the things that we said that, that said about Tom and Goldberry says this is no one's caught old Tom yet. You know, in other words, no one can catch Tom. We reflected on that last time, but this whole idea of no one's caught Tom yet, you know, sort of has an important, it has meaning for Goldberry because she tried to catch him. If you, if you go back to, to the story, uh, the event or the poem, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, you see it. So here's Tom, and it starts off. And by the way, what you have in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, this particular poem, is you have a series of creatures who try to catch Tom. The first is Goldberry, and then there's the there's Old Man Willow, then there is the Bradger or the Badger Brock, and then the Barrel White. They all try to catch Tom, and no one can catch him. <laughs> then. At the end, there's a surprise ending, and I'll get to that in a minute. But but here, we see Tom. It says, uh, old Tom in summertime walked about the meadows, gathering the buttercups, running after shadows, tickling the bumblebees that <laughs> 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 buzzed among the flowers, sitting by the waterside for hours upon hours. There his beard dangled long down into the water. Up came Goldberry the river woman's daughter <laughs> pulled Tom's hanging hair. <laughs> this is, you got to watch out for this, Glenn. You're, you, you could be Goldberry's Stay next away from the river. <laughs> that's right, that's right. In he went a wallowing under the water lilies, bubbling and a swallowing. Hey, Tom Bombadil, whither are you going? Said fair Goldberry bubbles. You are blowing. <laughs> <laughs> frightening the finny fish and the brown water rat startling the dab chicks and drowning your feather hat you bring it back again there's a pretty maiden said tom bombadil i do not care for wading <laughs> go down sleep again where the pools are shady far below the willow roots little water lady Back to her mother's house in the deepest hollow, 
swam young Goldberry, but Tom he would not follow. Hmm. Now, this is fun in a lot of ways, but but I think that he's getting at the Jenny Green Teeth kind of thing in a, in a, in a kind of inverted way. But in this story, it strikes me that Goldberry is flirting. Hmm. This is kind of classic girl flirtatious behavior, if you know what I mean. This is sort of, and to send a message to Tom that uh, she likes him. (laughs) 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 But I mean, we, but we also have this sort of mysterious presence of her mother, the river woman who's behind the scenes that, that I think corresponds to the devil river in the, finish you know story but anyway any thoughts on that lot to be said for beards (laughs) (laughs) it attracts the beautiful blonde girl from below the water (laughs) but there's also this this interesting reversal here because yeah the other stories you you have you know this is this is the one who needs to be caught, right? The, the, the river daughter. But in this case, it's the other way around. It's, it's almost okay. like she pursuing him, and which, is, which is a very different take. Though, I mean, a lot, a lot of times I think about like Irish folk music. You, you often have the, 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 uh, the woman pursuing the soldier, right? And the soldier is never That's very much the Scots-Irish uh, tradition. Yeah. The Celtic tradition is the feisty that's woman. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're always off to war, and they're always, you know, suffering. You know, um, <laughs> well, there's that too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there is this, you know, they won't pay attention to me. We're there with the brigands, and, and you know, right. yeah, the quiet um, man but, with with John Wayne and all that. Yeah, it's <laughs> a counterpart. I'm just going to um, encourage you to look up a song called "The Errant Apprentice." Okay, which is kind of the other side of this. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's pretty funny. I think you'd enjoy it. Um, yeah, the, the thing that I found myself thinking about her was Adam and Eve. Okay. And I'm, you know, I don't have it put together, but I have a feeling, you know, when, when Tolkien is describing um, Tom walking through the fields and, you know, just sort of uh, tickling the bumblebees and everything else, um, it made me think of Adam in the garden. Okay. And so the question is, is he kind of riffing on some of the ideas associated with that? And like I said, I don't have it all put together, but it's just one of the things that occurred to me that would be worth thinking about, I think. Well, as you recall, when we talked about Bombadil, we talked about a kind of analog to Adam. Right. What an unfallen Adam would be like in the world. Right, right. So now the story, as as the poem you know, goes on, you know, you've got these, it's episodic, you know, like I said, you got the Goldberry episode, the old man Willow episode, then you got the, the Badger Brock episode, and then you got the Barrow White. But the way the story ends is when, uh, uh, you got Bombadil turning the table on Goldberry. And so here's how it goes. Wise old Bombadil. He was a wary fellow. Bright blue his jacket was, and his boots were yellow. None ever caught old Tom in upland or in dingle, walking the forest paths or by the withy window, or out on the lily pools in boat upon the water. But one day, Tom, he went and caught the river daughter. Mm -hmm. 
in green gown, flowing hair, sitting in the rushes, singing her or singing old water songs to birds upon the bushes. He caught her, held her fast. Water rats went scut uh, scuttering. Reeds hissed, herons cried, and her heart was fluttering. Said Tom Bombadil, there or here's my pretty maiden. You shall come home with me. The table is all laden. Yellow cream, honeycomb, white bread and butter, roses at the windowsill, and peeping round the shutter. You shall come under hill. Never mind your mother in her <laughs> deep, weedy pool. There you'll find no lover. <laughs> what a great line, huh? Yeah, yeah. But here, he, so now, give me back, get, taking me back to the story. You know, the 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 story the uh, that I, I mentioned earlier about from the Mari people. Uh, if you can catch her, you can make her your wife. Tom catches her, but it's an interesting sort of dynamic because he's sort of turning and turning it on her. She tried to catch him. Now he's caught her. Now she's of course sent a message. This is one yeah, of those yeah. drop the hanky moments. Yeah. <laughs> she clearly uh, it has, you know, has something for him. And when we're told here, her heart is fluttering. Yeah. I don't think it, we're talking about fear as much as we're talking about sort of an elevated sense and excitement and kind of a happiness of joy, you know, that she's yeah. been caught. Yeah. Now, have you considered uh, Goldberry's mother and Grendel's mother? Wow, no, I had not made that connection, but that makes a lot of sense. Both of them living in a deep pool at the bottom of a pool in a um, uh, a cavern or whatever. Um, you know, uh, again, Tolkien was you knew Beowulf inside out. Well, he was the authority. Yeah, it makes me wonder if he's you know drawing from that image too. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, of course, you know, anyone who's written a story that's worth reading knows that uh, an author actually discovers the story as he writes it or she writes it and tells yeah. it. It's not, it's not like you sit down and make it all out perfect, you know, and sort of like just, ex, you know, sort of, you know, sort of recorded in, on, on the page. As you write, you often discover who your characters are, their connections. And this has led to a kind of mysticism among writers uh, because writers yeah. will will sort of see that their characters have an independent existence. Yeah, I, 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 comp I mean, I, I just know from having had to write a lot, that, that yeah, you, you start to see writing take on a life of its own. And yeah, you can completely see the mystical uh, element of that. It reminds me of George Steiner's book, uh, Real Presences, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. way in which literature and, and writing, um, I, I, yeah, that's a show in itself. I mean, I think we could, we spend a lot of time there, but you're right, they, you, you know, it's almost like you, you're caught up and start, you know, you know, be platonic. You start participating in something, and you realize, yes, you've been, you've been, you've been crafting this all along, but you've also been being crafted. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it is a, it is a, it is, and you see, you can. I, I mean, I completely could see this with Tolkien, especially the sense of discovery where he takes because of his interest in language and his fascination with the tales that give it life. Um, and then also the spiritual dimension, you have all of these things converging into a, a creative intellect and, and, and starting to find themselves. So when he writes, he's giving kind of 
he's, he's putting into it initial form and, and, and into that stuff, which I think also makes sense of, you know, good writers have a lopsidedness. I always found to, to, you know, it's like your first draft of anything. It's like heavy on one side and that, and you even see that sort of with the Lord of the Rings, you know, there's sort of weight, um, and, you know, in other writings, but anyway, yeah, that, that point I think is definitely worth a show or two. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think though, but, but I, I, you know, we, I, I sort of said mystical in a sort of an offhanded way, but but we've been talking about real presences. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about analogs. We've been talking about things that are themselves and yet refer to other things or participate in larger things. Now, what what this uh, has done for me is given me some sort of grist for the mill when it comes to the whole matter of what do we do with the pagans? Um <laughs> Because w- what you have with the pagans is often a kind of realism about things in the sense that when we look out upon the world, you know, let's be honest, you know, it's, it looks like a beautiful place from the safety of our centrally heated home. <laughs> 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 yeah. When you're actually in it, there's a severity to the beauty. To the beauty. It can kill you. Yeah. So there's, there's this, you know, like the Jenny Greenteeth story. You know, you can you can die in a pool. So the idea that something is feminine doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmless. Yeah. You know, you know it it it's there's there's a um, there's a well, power present and, and the there power could, could be all of the Edenic. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. all of the Edenic with with that beauty comes also the deception and the fall when not steered towards its sanctification and redemption. And so you know, here she. You know, think of the garden story. I mean, she looks at the the fruit, and it was good to the eyes. You know, it was, you know, it mm-hmm. was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you know, right, whatever right. you think of beauty, here's someone attracted to beauty, takes beauty, partakes of it, shares it, and yet in that beauty and beautifulness is this, you know, bringing someone to shift the metaphors into the beautiful water to drown them. Yeah. <laughs> you that's, know? It, that's it. And so restoration is, is the pulling her out of the water, right. And, and in yeah. some sense, severing her from the mother-in-law that wants to bring her into the back into the, you know, to bring the, 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 the son-in-law into the water. Right. right and right. he's going to bring her out, but in, 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 in a weird way, it, it brings you back to the Edenic, of course, through, through you know, the line of Adam and Eve is going to become through Eve, redemption, but in a sense, sanctification is also going to come through Christ so that you also have this, this play between male, female, female, and male. So there's a, there's a lot going on, both on the theological, spiritual, but also on the loric and, and mythical. Yeah, and clearly, you know, someone like Tolkien would, would see things that w- w- we don't even see. I mean, you know, yeah. he has such yeah. a capacious memory and sort of knowledge about languages and and the lore of the of the North in particular. I can't help but think that there's some some sense in which there's an echo even of Christ and the Church in this. Well, you know, th- what I find myself thinking about is uh, Milton. When Milton wrote Paradise Lost, he was he was blind at that point in his life. And what he did is he had his daughters read to him epic literature in all, all kinds of languages. In, in you know, he'd have them read Homer and the Aeneid and Dante in Italian and, you know, Song of Roland and, you know, 
you know, pick your, your source, um, just boatloads of things every night. They would be reading to him all of these things, Christian and pagan alike. He would go to sleep, and in the morning, he would dictate Paradise Lost. Right. And what was happening is he was taking input from all of these different sources, and his mind was working on it in the night as he was sleeping, so that when he got up, either it was already in his head or he was able to compose in perfect iambic pentameter this incredibly dense, rich poem about the fall, but that intertwines into it ideas and themes from pretty much everything else in literature. Yeah, you see, that, that's the thing. Everything else in literature that, that fascinates me, because there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a kind of iconoclasm within Protestantism that's basically uh, kind of a uh, slash and burn approach to paganism it's basically there's if there's any taint of evil it all must go mm-hmm. you know and so we're just going to burn it all the ground we're going to smash all the idols we're just going to you know sort of <laughs> blot it out we're going to we're just we're, we're not even going to think about it anymore but we don't see that with tolkien we don't see that with lewis and one of the, you know, an example with Lewis, when we think about like Mr. Tumnus in, the, you know, the opening of, you know, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here we have a fawn. Now, this is a pan-like figure. Pan. Bacchus. Bacchanalia. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. associations. Yeah. And, and we appear later, too. Right, yeah. right. And all the yeah, associations well, are this, you know, sort of tied yeah. to this sort of licentious sexual uh, you know, sort of giving oneself over to pleasure. And yet by putting a package in the little fawn's hands and giving him an, an umbrella, suddenly everything has changed. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. Mr. Tumnus is civilized. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in a sense, there is that, there is that kind of, you know, making good Englishmen out of the, the old pagan, you know, that's sort of what they were up to, but, but, you know, on a deeper level, these I think these people were very, you know, wise and profound theologically on the level that patristic and and other church figures were. And I would argue Calvin is, too. Calvin, whatever the iconoclasm, I understand the iconoclasm because you're dealing with the materialization of grace to where it becomes something that we, we can manipulate. And, and Calvin in, in the Reformation is having to to per you know kind of kind of purify that to 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 let you know to to freshly talk about the way in which god's presence is not something human beings um can manipulate um and, and so that that's what's going on there but what do you have in the first several generations you have protestant scholastics which have been now both in evangelicalism much less the the harnacks of the world even Bart, for, for all the profound things of, of trying to retrieve the tradition, could not get over. You know, Princeton Seminary, for example, still can't get over. And, and they're still living in Harnack's world. But it's this notion that for some reason, you know, for two minutes, the church was pure. And then three minutes, once it got Hellenized, oh, it went, <laughs> but what did the Protestant scholastics do? Who did they, re- who did they take to, inst- to, to say, okay, that now the, now the Reformation that Calvin initiated, Luther initiated, and, and other figures, how do, we, how do we carry it on? They went to 
the scholastics, they went to scholastics like Thomas and those figures. Why? Because they were bringing back in the, the, the old, you know, stuff we need to get rid of? No, because they understood that relationship. The problem is they didn't have enough time. It, it's what uh, John Webster used to say. They slowed down the process of naturalism in, in Protestant world by going to the scholastics. But in the end, the, the, the naturalism flooded in a different way. But, but taking it from a different angle, the, I'm not saying every Protestant scholastic would have loved to run to Socrates or other sources, um, but they, they had an appreciation of the patristics and classic Christian culture enough to not work with the polarities of reason versus faith that have really come down into the Protestant world. And really, the Protestant world is troubled by either a very sick naturalism or a very sick idealism, whether you're Van, Van Til on the idealist side or, you know, some of the hyper Kuyperians on the naturalist side. See, and interestingly and, enough, I would argue they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. What's happened within Protestantism is that, you know, if, if, you, look, if you look at the reformers, they talked about what they were doing in terms of reform of word and sacrament. Yeah. We've turned it into reform of word. Yeah. It's become yeah. exclusively doctrinal, which means it's either idealistic a la Van Til, or it's a, a system of belief that has no embodiment to it. Yeah, yeah. And in either case, you end up with a faith that has very little to do with the physical world, doesn't know what to do with the physical world, which is why evangelical churches are so ugly. Yeah. Utilitarian. And the way in which the entertainment replaces liturgy. Now, I understand there's exactly. certain types of liturgy that have, you know, they want to make it look like to be a Christian, you basically, you know, you have to set up, you know, basically, you know, ancient, you know, monarchy, you know, you sort of have everyone wearing, you know, um, but I'm talking about the, the, the classic pattern, which had the heartbeat of creation, agriculture, times, calendar, saints, they, they had these things because these things were the, the pulse beat of the way in which that organic connectedness to creation was fulfilled in Christ. And, and, and so when we purge all of that and we, we, we say, okay, we can abstract redemption from creation, and then we, we place now redemption in uh, something which I, I consider to be a very perverse Gnosticism, this way in which the modern world has ripped us off from any connectedness, the story, dance, ritual, you know, classic liturgy things, and has replaced it now with the, sort of the rock concert, which, which still wants to connect to something that, that it, you know, has some kind of energy to it, but it's so detached. Um, well, it's, 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 it's the bad side of Dionysius. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, it's like Dionysius, you know, yeah, rip, ripped out of his culture and, and placed into, a, a, you know, just a room with a big amplifier. <laughs> but but, but kind of, you know, as I, I, was, I, was, I was reflecting on this, I thought, you know, I, I went from this sort of, uh, you know, book where I was thinking, okay, this, this is about Tom Bombadil. And oh, by the way, he's kind of married to Goldberry and I better talk about her to no, I think that maybe Goldberry is the heart of mm. what the sort of Bombadil story is about, because what you have there is uh, 
Tolkien, in the course of the story, takes the Jenny Green Teeth kind of thing, or this other story, you know, from the Mari people in, you know, this this the former Soviet Union, uh, this Finnish, you know, minority, and and works with it in a way that I don't think was like soup. It was like it wasn't self conscious. But it was because it was so much a part of his conscious that he finds a way to work with the sort of the parameters of the story and redeem it. In other words, there's a kind of seeing the primal or the or the uh, uh, the um, the the archetype archetypical archetypal mm-hmm. um, character. Of, of this female water spirit, sort of the personification of this, this body of water that's moving through the old forest, the Withywindel. And she's got a questionable start. I mean, she does try to drown Bombadil. <laughs> maybe, maybe because she's infatuated with him and wants him to come to live with her, but he can't that live with her. sort of defines infatuation, terms. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the story ends happily. Of course, she comes to live with him. And there are lots of things that we could do with that. But but to me, the the more interesting thing is in sort of the heart of how we should engage with sort of what predates the Christian revelation is not is not this sort of callous, you know, sort of burnt earth approach. Just it's all it's all trash. It's all got to go. It's got to be it, what I see in this story is sort of evidence of a of a more uh, redemptive way of thinking, which sees the good that is very difficult, perhaps, to see. But the process of drawing it out is the is the miracle. Yeah, you know, how could you get a goldberry without a Jenny gold, uh, Green Teeth? Yeah. What you're seeing is in the redemption of Goldberry, as it were, you're seeing the redemption of the pagan tradition. Yeah. Of discarding the, the evil, trying to drown Tom, but seeing beyond it to that which is good and true and beautiful. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the heart of it. And and there's a severe beauty to it there it's it's not a safe beauty it's kind of like when we when we think about aslan and he's not a tame lion you know there is a there's a side to paganism that is uh sublime outsized they they saw the world on its own terms they didn't need to bodlerize it you know make it you know <laughs> suitable for children viewing children's viewing <laughs> <laughs> like Disney. That's, yeah, I was going to say Disney it. <laughs> that's, right. that's one of the reasons why both Tolkien and Lewis despised Disney. <laughs> they re- Disney ruins so many good stories. <laughs> yeah. 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 By the way, uh, you should also look into the stories of the Selkie. If you're yes. Not familiar with those. That's another one of these things where you marry a water spirit, but of a different sort. Yeah, in fact, I I read about them in this. <laughs> a great resource, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, we, we're kind of getting uh, long on time here, so we should probably wrap it up. Anything you want to say as we conclude, Tom? 
No, great stuff. I look forward to both your finished product and also continuing this conversation. I know we will. And, and yeah, we have to get back to the one with uh, literature, mysticism, and real presences. I think. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, we got to do that. Fascinating right. topic, too. Right, right. Anything you want to say? Uh, I think I've said enough already. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, we thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we've said this many times, but we don't take you for granted. We, we really do appreciate it. And uh, our goal with our Indiegogo campaign is sort of to take the show to the next level. There have been folks who, uh, you know, over the past year have said to us, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could have a list of, of materials that we could read to follow up on a particular show? Or wouldn't it be great if there was some way that, that we could maybe suggest material for a show, you know, different things. And that's what we hope to do through our Indiegogo campaign. We hope to establish a website. Uh, get some new equipment that will help us to do a better job of recording the show in a high-quality way, uh, you, know, you know, when we do record it. Uh, and then also pay for, and this is a really important thing, the, the, uh, the, the people or the person whose responsibility is, it is to kind of man- manage the, 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 the site. You know, we're all busy, you know. We've got other things to do. We, we kind of do this, uh, you know, in our spare time. So. Uh, if you would give to the Indiegogo campaign, it, it would be appreciated. And as I noted earlier, if you want to find it, just find uh, Theology Pugcast on YouTube. You can watch our little introduction to the campaign there. And there's a link in the notes there on in the YouTube video that'll take you right to the Indiegogo campaign. Anyway, thanks again for watching, or watching, well, it's those of you who are watching and <laughs> listening uh, to the Theology Pugcast. Bye-bye. I know. I know.